Malachi chapter 3, I think this is about week number 6 in this book, it has been deeply effective in many of our souls, so we're grateful for our time in this book. I think your, your notes got the head chopped off of them, so you don't see a title there, you don't see a bunch of stuff, for some reason there's a little piece of notes missing. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, the title this morning is Grace, Giving, and Greatness. Grace, Giving, and Greatness. You know, each Father's Day we have set aside something of the service to honor fathers, to communicate the importance of fathers. We're going we're to do that again today. We're going to pray for fathers at the end of the service. And so I, I really want fathers, I want all of us to be listening obviously, but I want fathers to be paying particular attention as to what's in these passages in Malachi and how might they inform the influential role you play in the body of Christ, in your families, in the future generations of Christianity. Uh, Malachi has brought this marriage of fathers and honoring together as we began this study in chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. God says, if then I am a father, where is my honor? It's, It's appropriate today for us to be honoring fathers. I hope that is on your schedule today. I hope that you are, by grace, redemptively able to honor your father, even though your father may not have played fully the role that you had wished he'd played. Maybe I I know Father's Day for many is a difficult, challenging day in some ways. But, But yet there's something about... God and his work that allows us to enter into honoring our fathers, even when that's not an easy thing to do. The Bible still calls you to do that. It's not an option. It doesn't describe honoring our fathers as, well, have they earned you honoring them? Have they done well enough to be honored? It just calls on you to honor them. But I want to say this, and and to stay within Malachi's emphasis here. I don't think you're going to do a real good job of honoring your earthly father if you're out of touch with what it is to honor your heavenly father. The basis for us being able to honor anyone is understanding divine order. You know, where where does God fit into the categories of the food chain of importance? If he is of greatest importance, then everything else falls into place. If he is of diminished importance, then everything else gets repositioned. And so typically when God gets repositioned, it's because we're being repositioned. We want to be in a greater place. And and the moment I get in a greater place and God gets diminished, uh, it will be very hard today for me to honor a father who didn't treat me right. Why is that so hard? Well, because I deserve to be treated better. I've got a pretty high opinion of myself and how I should have been treated. My dad didn't treat me that way. See, where do you get this idea that I deserved better? Well, it's by elevating who we are, and the only way you can do that is to bump God from where he is. If I'm seeing God accurately, then I'm going to see relationships accurately. I'm going to do life differently if God is great in my midst. Look, Look at this thought from Charles Spurgeon. He says, the highest science, the loftiest 
speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. It's the greatest thing that our minds can be connected to. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. Right? Just contemplating God and thinking on God accurately affects our minds. It affects the way in which we think about everything. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Right? It's Father's Day, and for some of us to honor fathers might be a swallowing of pride, right? Well, well, pride gets drowned. It doesn't just get swallowed. It gets drowned in the presence of the greatness of God. And so if you're today, you're saying, you know, man, before I came in here, I had no intentions on calling my dad. No way. And now you're making me feel bad. Uh, well, well, here's grace for you to be able to do that. You see God accurately. And you stand amazed at how this great God is relating to you because you see yourself accurately. You'll have a much easier time honoring your dad today, putting him in a place where you can connect with him. Spurgeon goes on and says, other subjects we can, com- we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thoughts that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday, and no, nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Right now, I know we're focused on fathers today, but if you think through church relationships, marriages, as Malachi was doing just the previous chapter, faithlessness that he kept acknowledging that you guys are faithless people towards one another. You don't honor your responsibilities, your commitments to one another. What informs all that? Where's that, where's that come from? Well, according to Malachi, it comes from a diminished view of God. That's what we find in Malachi. That's the issue that Malachi keeps bringing to us. And so today, as we look at this passage today, let's keep in mind that this passage is just another example of a people who are suffering from a diminished view of God. All right, Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you 
and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Father, help us today to receive the grace the insight, the revelation you stored up in these words for us today to be affected by. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me me go back and catch something here we we mentioned a little bit last week. You know, in a book that deals consistently and maybe some of us feel like heavily in correction. There's a lot of correction in this book. It moves from topic to topic to topic, highlighting this is broken, this is broken, this is broken. But, you know, when we, when we come to the Bible, we want to train ourselves to see all that's there, all that's there. And that's why I titled this Grace, Giving, and Greatness, because there's grace in this passage. I know you read through it quickly, and you get to the end, and you go, wait, <laughs> all right, there are lousy marriages, lousy offerings, lousy priests, and now lousy tithes. This is just a lousy bunch of people. But there's grace in this passage. There's grace in what we just read. Right? I said last week, i got to say it again. There's grace in the sense that Malachi is talking to these people at all. Right? Correction is a form of grace. It's a form of God moving us to the place where he can bless our lives. He can conduct business in our walk. So what feels like you're in the wrong spot, oh, I'm being told I'm wrong, is grace from God initiated by God's messenger who raised up Malachi to go to a people who probably didn't want to hear from him, and yet by grace God sends this messenger to correct them. Last week we saw the ultimate day of grace was coming when they were questioning, hey God, why aren't you showing up? Where's the justice of God? God says, well, that day of justice is coming. It's coming in the day of the Lord. Suddenly my messenger speaking of the Messiah, is going to come. In the midst of a wayward people, God tells him about this incredible day of grace that's coming. A day, as we said last week, a day in which people would reject the Messiah, and yet grace would still show up in their lives. That's grace. There's grace as the book opens. A people who are wayward get reminded by God, saying, I have loved you. And they're they're still asking dumb questions in the beginning of the book too. Really? How have you loved us? And God has to explain to them, I have uniquely loved you. Have you noticed a difference between how I have dealt with Esau and the Edomites versus how I have dealt with you? You notice a difference. You guys live these lives where you rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall and I consistently am part of restoring you. Those guys have lived a life of rising and falling, rising and falling. And when they say, we will rise up and rebuild, I turn and say, no, you won't. I will oppose you. You are a wicked nation to me. So God highlights that there is this unique love of God on his people. And he highlights that again here. Look in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, right? Now, now, there's a reason why there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a good thing here and not so good thing going on in this passage. I, the Lord, don't change. You know? 
that's good and that's bad depending on who you are. Because remember, we got into this passage by people raising this scandalous accusation against God, saying, look look at all the evil amongst the people of God. (laughs) Where's God? God must delight in this kind of stuff if he keeps letting it go on. Where's the justice of God? And then you get this response from God. Well, I, the Lord, I do not change. And there will be a day of justice. And God highlights that there's coming a day of justice. But for my people, that day will be a day of mercy. But listen carefully. It will not be a day of mercy for everyone. I, the Lord, do not change. I'm not the God of justice one day. And then, you know, today, I'm just not the God of justice anymore. No, he will be the God of justice. And he will highlight, and he does here in the passage just before this, he highlights this path of wickedness. He says, I will bring swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me. These are helpful verses, especially for people who live in a highlight real mentality. That for us, the only sins that are really bad sins are the ones that make news headlines. You know, that, that's, there's lots of sins that we don't even consider sin anymore. But when you look at God's list here, it, it, you've got sorcerers at one end, and you've got people who just don't fear God. Right? I mean, you just, you just don't fear God. You're just doing your own thing. You're living your own life. You've got your own set of priorities. And then in between there, you've got people who are taking advantage of others. You've got liars in here. And God is saying, I'm, I'm the God who doesn't change. I will bring justice. How, how many of us came today thinking the God of the universe is one day going to bring justice against all liars? All liars are going to get it. I mean, were, you, were you thinking that yesterday? When there was an opportunity to lie, when there was maybe a pattern of life of lying. I mean, it's just lying. I mean, it's not a major deal. It's just everybody lies. But I, the Lord God, don't change. Your society has changed. Your people around you have changed. But I don't change. Lying is still sin. And God says, I will bring justice against those lies. Yet, God tells his people, but you you will not be consumed. I don't change. And though you keep changing, and you're like a moving target, one day faithful, one day wandering, one day faithful, one day wandering, I've stayed the same towards you. That's why Malachi is having this conversation with him, because God is the same to these people as he has always been. Always been. God, God's not in a good mood, right? God's putting up with us because he's in a good mood today. I sure hope God, you know, God's not like, you know, appreciate fathers here today, but God's not like your father in that sense. You know, you got to approach dad. Is dad in a good mood? I'm pretty sure my kids are calculating that when they come to ask. Is dad dad in a good mood? Is dad in a merciful mood today? Uh, Well, God's not in moods. God's the same. He never changes. Do you realize what incredible good news that is for you and me as the people of God? Because we're not going to be consumed. And that's not going to change. Right, this sounds this way in the New Testament. If you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Here's what this sounds like in New Testament language. 
Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, cooperating with, eager for, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, I love the circular thinking there, you catch that? Not being rich in mercy because we pulled it together. Not being rich in mercy because we're on a hot streak of better behavior. But God being rich in mercy because of the love that's in him with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite verses right here. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do this saving us completely by grace, not based in us, but based in him because of an undying affection in God to spend himself lavishly on us for the rest of eternity. Now now listen, I know we're familiar with those verses from Ephesians, but did you see Ephesians 2 in these passages when you read Malachi? Or did you think, oh, well, that's that. I don't see that, you know. I don't, I don't see that in Malachi. That's that Old Testament God. That's before he had the lobotomy, you know. He's, he's angry in the Old Testament, but he's different in the New. Well, no, no, no. I, the Lord, do not change. I, I didn't get older and mellow. I'm in Ephesians 2. I'm chilling. Uh, no. I'm the same God in Malachi that I am in Ephesians chapter 2, and you can see God dealing with his people the same way in Malachi as he does in Ephesians chapter 2, in light of knowing that one day I'm sending the Messiah. All the demands that I require of a people are going to be met in him. And so therefore, I have reasons in me to care for you the way I do that aren't based in what you do or don't do next, so that I can lavish grace upon you. For all eternity. All right, well, this is the same God that's here in Malachi. Now, here's, here's where I draw comfort from this passage. If I were to paraphrase, this is God saying, it's because I am the way that I am that you don't get what you deserve. And I know every one of us at, at moments are battling through our inconsistencies, our selfishness, our pride, our destructive habits that have affected somebody else yet again for the hundredth time. And at some point thinking we've spent the last ounce of God being gracious to us. We deserve something different. Some of us are in touch with what we deserve. Some of us aren't in touch with what we deserve though, right? There's plenty of us in America who, uh, it's, it's sort of this entitlement air we breathe that we deserve to be treated better. We deserve something from God even. 
But for those of us in the church who struggle with, what's going to happen if God gives me what I deserve? Would you take comfort in this passage? I, the Lord God, I do not change. And because I am the way I am, you are never going to get what you deserve. That's never going to happen. I take great comfort in that. If the future of my life, the future of my being a husband, the future of my caring for my children, the future of me just walking out life with any integrity is based in me, and I don't have any hope. I know the raw material that's here, right? I know, I know what's in here. But if it's based in a God who is the same always and who has chosen to uniquely identify me as his people, and he is for me for reasons that I've not supplied to him, so therefore I can't take them away from him, what a future and what a hope. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's not on your outline. He says, God is, he has not become an almighty tyrant, right, all of a sudden, whereas he was once an almighty father. But his strong love stands like a granite rock unmoved by the hurricanes of our iniquity. And blessed be his dear name. He is unchanged in his love. When he first wrote the covenant, how full his heart was with affection to his people. He knew that his son must die to ratify the articles of that agreement. He did not hesitate to sign that mighty covenant, nor did he shun its fulfillment. He loves as much now as he did then. And when suns shall cease to shine and moons to show their feeble light, he still shall love on forever and forever. Right? The reason why God sounds the way he does to Malachi's people is because he keeps mentioning Jacob over and over and over again. Right? You've picked that up in the passages? Because God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that is shaping what he's doing with these people today in Malachi. And that covenant supersedes their waywardness. And that covenant supersedes my waywardness and your waywardness today. Now question here, because God's about to interestingly turn a corner. I, the Lord, do not change. And then he's going to turn around and say, return to me, and I will return to you. Now that sounds like, cha- that sounds like change, doesn't it? How do you make sense out of that? Well, you know, I think when we read through some of these passages, I think you need to pay careful attention to what is covenant-based love of God and then what is responsibility to us to live in the covenant, to experience the covenant of God. Because what's going to be said right here is God basically saying that there is benefit for you that's awaiting you tithing. That's what he says. Return to me. We'll look at the return just a second. But there's benefit here in you giving. I'm going to show up in your life in a certain way. If, if you give it, I'm going to, your experience is going to become the windows of heaven are going to open up and you're going to experience this provision from me that begins to just soak up all the need in your life. That's what you're going to experience 
If you go back to Haggai, similar people, similar setting, similar problems. God is postured in a different way. God is saying, hey, you guys are all scratching your heads and you're trying to figure out, why is it that we go to work, we earn wages, we stick it in our pockets, and it's like there's holes in our pockets. We never seem to have anything. Why is it that we eat and we drink, but we're never content, we're never filled up? Why is that? And God answers and he says, well, because you bring this stuff home and I blow it away. Because God was opposing them. They were not experiencing grace. Now, question, were they still the covenant people of God? Yes. But were they experiencing grace in that moment? No. There was a gracious God postured toward them, but their experience was my my pockets are empty, my life feels empty, I'm not experiencing. God, it doesn't feel like the windows of heaven are open. It feels like this is an old New Orleans window. You can't open it. It's painted shut. Listen, notice carefully in this passage. You're not being told to tithe so that you can join Jacob's family. You don't get into Jacob by tithing. You see the difference here? God is pronouncing, you are my people. And then tithing becomes a means of receiving something from God. And I think that's significant. I don't don't think we want to treat the means of obedience to God as insignificant because we understand grace to mean God has self-generated his love toward us. So therefore, it doesn't matter what we do. It seems to matter right here. It seems to matter similarly as last week when we looked. Here, they're going to be invited to return. Last week, we saw... God is sending grace. The ultimate arrival of grace is coming in my messenger who's going to suddenly appear, come to his temple. It's going to be the son of God wrapped in human flesh, and he's going to die in your place. But God sent a messenger before him to prepare the way, right? you remember this? And what was that messenger's message? It was a message of repentance, It was God's means of establishing receptivity in our hearts. It was God putting an emphasis on us posturing our hearts to receive grace from God. The grace is coming. God's committed to the grace for his people. But for them to receive it, it's like God says, you need to stand on on this this square, right? I'm going to drop it right here. This square of repentance, this piece of real estate called repentance. So that God sends a messenger and begins to move people. Hey, over here, Andy, over here. Stand right here. Grace is going to drop right here on the grounds of repentance. If your heart is humble, it's adjustable, it's open, it's not stiff and prideful when the grace of God is revealed, you're going to experience grace. Well, it's similar here. This, this is a pathway. How, how shall you return to me, says the Lord? Well, stop robbing me. That's how you can return to me. What do you mean? We're not robbing you. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, you are in your tithes and contributions. You are robbing me. So God says, travel down this road, right? Get on this road where you are offering to me tithes, the full tithe. You're offering that to me. It's going to become a means of grace. It's going to be a highway. You travel on this and return to me, you're going to begin to experience grace in your life. Like the windows of heaven just opened up, and I'm just soaking up all the need in your life, and I'm everything that you need. But what if you don't travel down that road? 
Right, so it seems significant. God seems to put an emphasis on returning. There's a path. There's, there's a location. It matters what you and I do if we want to experience the grace of God. Now, let me transition here into this, this subject of giving. Look in uh, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. All right. If, if giving in churches is a controversial subject, this, this is like the epicenter passage for that controversy. Right, so if we want to get controversial, this one does it right here. Right, the whole discussion about, you know, should we give? How do we give? We're New Testament people. Are New Testament people under some obligation, some requirement, some expectation, some law to give 10%? You know, so we, we start down the road of discussion and debate. We've all got a few passages and we're armed. We take our place. We shoot. We're ready to go to war over this. But typically when people borrow this passage for that discussion, I, I think I could probably safely say this. The vast majority of people who will use this passage haven't studied the rest of the book of Malachi. I find that interesting. It's almost like, let me grab this passage to make my point. It talks about it, use the words that I want to use. But you know, if I'm reading Malachi, Malachi's main concern in this book is, is not the details of tithing. That's not what Malachi's got his nose out of joint about here. Uh, any more than Malachi's main concern is, you know, lame offerings and spotted lambs that are being brought. And he brings that up. That's not his main point, is it? He talks about faithlessness amongst the people, and he talks about marriages that are being done wrong and divorce that's taking place. But this is not a marriage manual, and his main concern is not divorce and remarriage. What's his main concern? His main concern is how the people of God see God. His main concern is displaced greatness. You're, you're a people who just one category after another in your lives proclaims little God, unworthy God, less than honorable God. One place after another, right? Back up a little bit in Malachi chapter 1, remember? As a son honors his father, a servant his master, verse 6. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? Right, what's God after in this book? He's, he's after the place that he really does occupy. He's after the place of honor in the eyes of his people. Right, in this first chapter, it, it is stated over and over again. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
What's God's concern here? It's for the greatness of his name. It's, it's an audience that doesn't see God as great, and their lives show that. And he just lists one piece of behavior after another that screams, your problem is you don't see me as great. I'm not amazing to you. I'm not awesome to you. You're not, you're not dazzled by me and drawn and affected in your life. You see there in verse 14 in the end of the chapter, chapter 1? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Why, why cursed? Why is this a problem? Well, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Right, what, what, what's the issue that Malachi is concerned about? He's concerned about the worth, the honor, the greatness of God in the eyes of his people. That's what he's, that's what he's passionate about. That's what's going to cause their lives to look different in all these categories. That's what's going to make you different than the other nations. That's why you won't behave the way they do, because you see me as great. And you're drawn to me, and you honor me with your life. And you obey me because of the position you have granted who I'm to be in your life. This is is not, I'm the Lord God, I do not change. This is the same theme you find all over the pages of Scripture. Right, we just studied through 1 Peter. You guys remember, I think a key verse for 1 Peter is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It's surrounded by a bunch of behavioral modifiers. Right? Don't, don't envy each other. Don't slander one another. You know, promotion of unity. Abstain from fleshly lusts that's waged war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And, and then that long list of Submit. Submit to authorities in the government who are corrupt and doing the wrong thing and treating you poorly. Slaves, submit to owners and masters who mistreat you. Submit to them. uh, Wives, submit to your husbands even when they disobey the word. Be in submission to them. Why? Why all this unusual behavior in the context of these people in 1 Peter? Well, for the same reason Malachi is being challenged here. For you are a chosen generation, 1 Peter 2.9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who these guys are. Why, though, to show forth, to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his light? Once you were not a people just like everybody else, scavenging the earth, trying to figure out what to live for next. But now, you are a people. Why why live a certain way? Because that's who you are. You are proclaimers of the excellency of God. That's who you're made to be. To see God in greatness and proclaim greatness. To see God in glory and proclaim glory. Now, Now, here's the problem. Here's my contention with Arguments on giving, which is why I'm actually not going to argue much on giving this week. I will next week. So if you want to avoid a service, that would be the one to avoid. (laughs) Here's my contention. Too many people come to the topic of giving, and they've extracted the greatness of God from their conversation. They don't come out of breath like the angels around the throne going, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord. 
Now let's talk about giving. They, they come from a different perspective, right? You know, you've, you've, brought, you've brought some thoughts to this discussion. You've come, you got a position, you're ready to defend something. You're ready to say, I should or I shouldn't. You must, I don't have to. You've got a position on this, but, but are you out of breath gazing on the greatness of God and then discussing how to give to that God? I think if you're not, I think you've totally missed Malachi. You can grab that verse all you want. But Malachi's concern from the beginning to the end is about the greatness of God in the eyes of the people of God and them living in such a way that their lives scream and proclaim our God is a great God. So when we get into the topic of giving next week, we're going to have to answer that question. Do I give like God is a great God? Right? This is no different than the other things. Do, do I order my life and pick from among the lambs like God is a great God? Do I, do I treat my wife in such a way that declares God is a great God. Let me, let, me, let me show you how God is. You can see it in how I love my wife and how I lay my life down for her and how I treasure her and how I don't divorce her, how I don't treacherously deal with her, as Malachi has said. You see that. And I'm proclaiming the greatness of God in those places. Now, let me, let me swing the pendulum in the other direction here because some folks grab these passages and go in a little bit different direction with them. They, they create this heavenly technique here. Right? We come to this passage, and what gets learned here is a topic of giving, and it's sort of this, this secret kingdom password. Right? And, and it's being discussed by people who have very, usually nominal, relationships with God. But they're religious and they've heard some messages maybe on prosperity, on life improvement, how you can have more, have better, improve your lot in life. And then this passage is introduced. And it's introduced this way, like it's a kingdom principle. There's this principle here that if you just give your 10%, there's this secret thing that even God's got to, he's even got to honor that, you know, like it's a kingdom coupon. You show up with this thing. And, and God's got to open the windows of heaven. That's just how it works, bro. You know, um, you know, it's like one of those late night infomercials, you know. You can buy real estate with no money down. No, really, you can't. I have. I'm the wealthiest man. And they have this conversation. You guys have seen this. There's secret money available from the government. Listen, this, the average Christian just doesn't know this. There's secret money from God. If you just use this technique, you can get it too. Just give your 10% and God Redeem the coupon. He'll open the windows of heaven, and all of a sudden, there's abundance in your life everywhere. It's a land of delight. Uh, okay, you, you haven't read the book of Malachi either, have you? <laughs> you haven't had your ears pinned back by a God who's making a case, not for a technique, right? What's, what's Malachi attacking? Malachi's attacking a low view of God. When God stands before his people in this passage and he says, put me to the test, what do, you, what do you think he's inviting you to do? Play some roulette wheel? <laughs> put, me, put me to the test. Try this technique out and see if in 30 days you don't, you know. This, this is not what God's doing. 
God is, God is responding to a bunch of people who have removed God from greatness in their eyes. Greatness in categories like a great provider, a faithful and great father, the one in whom all my future hope is bound up is in him. It's nowhere else. It's not in me. It's not in my money. Right? What these guys were suffering through was they, they had a hard time parting with 10% of crops, 10% of flocks, because that 10% meant something to them. It meant something about their future. It was a source of security. It was, it was provisional for them. There was a little piece of hope tied up in what that bit of money could afford them in this life. And they were so bound up to that that they had demoted God. And they had stuck the 10% amount. This sounds crazy, doesn't it? You demote God and you stick 10%, just 10% of your not all your income, just 10%. Of your income gets put in a place where God has to now serve that. God has been demoted. He's, he's here, that's here, and I'm looking to that, and my hope and my future and my good is in that. That's what God's attacking. Not some technique. You guys, you guys don't get the technique. No, you've you've misplaced me. You don't give because you don't trust me. You don't hope in me. You don't think I'll be faithful to you. I love this passage. Psalm 78, verse 5. It says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Now stop. All right, now Why? God, why'd you do all that? Why'd you reveal all that stuff so that we'd have some material for catechism, some Sunday school lessons to teach, a little Bible study helps? Is that so we know stuff, right? No, I I want you to know it for a reason after you know it. Because you can't have that reason unless at least you know it. But I don't just want you to know it. I just don't want you to have familiar stories where you know the details and you can tell the Bible stories too. I want you to know these things because I want you to know me. And when you know me, you will do the next part. Set their hope in God. That's what I want you to do. I want you to be a people unique in all the earth. Unique in this way. Listen, this will be informing for the body of Christ. Unique, not in the sense that you and I get a pass on suffering in this world. Not in the sense that you and I live a life that, you know, we have no more sickness, we, have, we don't shed any tears, there's no disappointment, things don't break, relationships don't go bad. Right? Now, one day that will be us, right? That's heaven. But we don't get a pass on that in this world. So what makes us unique as a people is not that we get to an exemption from the lives they have to live. What makes us unique is in the midst of living the same lives they're living, we are never without hope. We are a people filled with hope in God. Keith, what's this got to do with a tithe? Well, I think it's got everything to do with a tithe. Remember, and I'll cover this more next week, the tithe is not some tax system to rescue God from bankruptcy. 
It is not a bad day in heaven. The economy has crashed. Stock market's down. Angels are scrambling. They're being laid off. Um, and, and God's going to need to, he's going to need to raise some taxes here. So, you know, it used to be 7%, it's 10% now. I'm sorry. Hey, you know, lights are going out everywhere. Um, it's not where it comes from. So where does this 10% idea come from? Well, we'll look at it a little bit next week. But I think 10% is just a significant number. I think it shows up on your radar. I think it grabs your attention. That's a significant amount of money for you. And so when I turn to God, because God has provided into my life and the mechanism he's created is I provide for you and you turn back to me and give me 10%. Remember, not because God needs it, but when I look at this passage and I look at these people in Malachi and I look at my own life, but because I need it. I need something in my life that keeps me from getting hooked on my money and hooked on my abilities and hooked on my talent and hooked on what I can do for the future. I need something in me to give me some sense of peace that it's not all about, my future is not all bound up in where the stock market goes, right? I mean, there are some of us in the body of Christ who are battling through Do I invest in retirement or do I give 10% to God? Because at some point, I'm not going to be able to work. And I'm going to need some kind of something to fall back on. What about God? Won't God be God on that day? Well, Keith, I don't have that. I'm young. My kids are young. And, you know, my issue with not tithing is because, you know, I just, my kids need to get a really solid education so that one day they can get a really solid job. I mean, I don't want them struggling through this life. Are your children dependent upon getting in the right school and having the right education in order to have the right life? Is that what you're laboring under? They bring home C's and D's and you want to punish them, shoot them, feed them something different, do something. Because you're just terrified, right? They, they just can't have a good future. They can't have a good future. What, what just happened here? Well, the, I thought I was hoping in God for their future. Or health benefits or whatever's on the list. There's a lot of reasons why we just determined I, I, I can't tithe because there's something else in my life that's critically important. And listen, here's what God does with a tithe. God pulls our hands and our dependency and our hearts away from things and puts it back on him. And for some reason, 10% is enough to do that. A dollar isn't enough, is it? Right? I mean, I would not be rescuing you if I said, listen, I don't get this from the Bible, which quite honestly, most people don't argue from the Bible when it comes to giving, quite honestly. But, you know, here's, here's the way Lakeview Christian Center is going to do it in the future. I just think everybody needs to give a dollar. I mean, it's just a thought that counts. As long as your heart is giving something to God, that's all that matters. I mean, it sounds workable, right? Sounds cool. But quite honestly, it'll never do this for you. It'll never accomplish this for you. I think God made giving just significant enough, significant enough to us, to where when I sit down and I write a check, do this. When you sit down and you write a tithe check, be thinking this in your heart. God, I, I transfer my hope for the future to you. Right? Why does God write this stuff down? Why does God do all this stuff? Why is Malachi having this conversation with these people? Because he wants them to see a great God. 
And, t- and tithing, I think, is designed to help us see and depend upon a great God. All right, now next week I'll, I'll go into some details on what, what does that look like practically. But let me just close with, with this thought. I think I put this in your outline there. Before we can even discuss the details and routines of biblical giving, we'll need to make sure the main point is in view here. Malachi's people first had to deal with their diminished view of God before they could even correctly enter a discussion about how to give to this God. Can you go with me there? I don't know what your position is. I don't know how you defend it. But can you just at least start there? That's where Malachi started. He didn't start Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, give 10% and the windows of heaven will open up. He started somewhere else. The issue was not giving. It was about the way they saw God. And giving reflected, you don't see God very well, do you? Now, in just a moment, let me ask the, the band to come back up. In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to pray for fathers. I'm going to share a few thoughts when the fathers stand in just a minute. But what I, what I find when I'm reading this description to Malachi, I find the same admonition to, in 1 Peter to the people of God today that it's here in this passage. You and I are called to be proclaimers about something about God. The way that we live screams that we believe something about God. So, you know, when when we're one of those people, and if you've ever had this, I've had this discussion with people in the church who, you know, their relatives are aware that maybe there's some financial challenges going on in their life right now, and their relatives will step in. The first thing you're going to say is, you do what? You give 10% to God? Well, that'd be the place to start. You, know, you want to fix some of these financial woes in your life. How about cutting that out? How about, you know, they don't get it. We give to God because we're proclaiming something about God. We are proclaimers of God. The way in which we live our lives proclaims something about God. I, and I want to I take a moment. This is, this is not about tithing. This is about proclamation, though. I sat in this auditorium Thursday. And listen to Christy Descant honor her mom, Miss Pat Benson. She died about two weeks ago. We had the memorial service here Thursday. Now, without me telling you any of the details, and I'm going to tell you the details in a second. Christy stood up. I wrote them down. She used three words to describe God. This is at a funeral for her mom. God is sovereign, God is merciful, and God is gracious. All right, now, if you don't know any of the details, you might be able to say that too. But this is who is saying those three words, proclaiming something about God. A girl who is standing at her mother's funeral, a girl born with cerebral palsy, A girl raised by a mom who for most all of her life was raised by a single mom. That single mom who had been diagnosed with juvenile diabetes as a child and faced deteriorating health all of her life. She had heart failure issues. She faced a kidney transplant at one point in her life while raising her daughter with cerebral palsy, having to move across the country to live with family from time to time. Because of health issues, she faced deteriorating eyesight throughout her life. 
just narrowing the field of what she could see, almost going blind towards the end of her life. She got saved here at an Alpha in 2001, I believe. About that same time, Rob and Christy Descant felt led by God to care for her in her need and to bring her into their home. And so from 2001 up till this last several months, Pat lived with Rob and Christy. Pat lived with her needs being cared for by a daughter with cerebral palsy who had three children of her own to care for. And she and Rob brought Pat into their home and cared for her. And so through a life of suffering with her mom, through a life of difficulty in these last many years as they have cared for her, the first thing out of her mouth is to stand up and to say this about God. God is sovereign, and he is merciful, and he is gracious. I wrote those three words down, and I thought, wow, that informs my perspective. I look at my life, and I don't have a script anywhere like that. And, and am I proclaiming God is sovereign, he is merciful, and he is gracious? Listen, that's, this is who we are. We're, we're loudspeakers stuck on planet Earth to proclaim the greatness of God. In the midst of difficulty, in the, in the midst, in this category, would be financial need, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what I want to do with fathers today. I want to put fathers in the crosshairs of being proclaimers. Can we pray for you that way this morning? That when generations look at you as a father, maybe as a grandfather, whether it's the way you handle your money, the way you prioritize your life and you bring your best to God, God always gets your best, as in chapter 1. Or maybe it's the way you treat your wife. Maybe how your kids see you treat others, how you honor your commitments to others, and you are responsible in categories of your life. So that over the course of time, they find you to be a proclaimer of the greatness of God. If they want to figure out, if I want a fresh definition for sovereign, merciful, and gracious, I just needed to listen to Christie's story. For me to realize, yes, in a deeper way, God, you really are sovereign, that this woman could stand and say that about you right now in her life. And I, I want my kids to come to a place in their life where they look at the life I've lived, the priorities, what I said no to and what I said yes to as a father, and I hope they can say that on the final day. My dad proclaimed to me something about God. I had a high opinion of God because of the life that man lived. Right now, I know all the fathers here, you love your kids, you love your grandkids, and you love God. You want that to be able to be your story as well. So let's, let's ask God, the God who corrects us but brings grace to us all at the same time. Fathers, stand with me, and, and you know, you're in touch. Right? You know, you feel like quite often you, excuse me, suck as a father. 
I'm going to get in trouble for that one. I can feel the emails coming already. <laughs> Linda, don't send me an email. I know, I know. I'm, I'm with you. I feel like we could, we could unroll a script and God could say, on this day, in that way, this pattern, I could be corrected. Malachi would be a short book just to talk about me as a father. But the God who comes to us in correction comes because I'm his. He doesn't come to consume me. Fathers, he's not here this morning to destroy us. He's here in grace. He's here to draw our attention to him in a fresh way and to receive grace. He's saying, hey, return to me. Stand here with repentant hearts and open hearts and just let me pour out grace upon your life. All right, so fathers, can I ask you, can we just stand together? Let's stand up, all the fathers that are here this morning. You know, in the past, we've given you guys trinkets to take home, little soldiers to pray and stick on your dashboards. We have all kinds of toys. Um, today, we just, we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray and, and in a secret, mysterious way by the Spirit, you're going to take something home with you. Can you get that? I'm serious. Don't just have this idea that, oh, no gift, no gift today, no book. You gave the women a book for Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> they got to take a book home. Uh, all right, you're going you're gonna to take home something imparted in the spirit from God. I, I see it all over the pages of Scripture. People gathered and prayed, and they launched out of that meeting with a boldness that they didn't have before the meeting. They got it after. God gave them something. Trust God is going to impart to fathers here. If you are near a father, if you are particularly related to that father, especially if you are a son or a daughter, uh, could you just kind of gather around fathers right now? If you're seated here this morning and maybe you can volunteer for a father support role, just pray for the person right near you there. Let's bow together before God. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for these men here this morning. Lord, thank you for the creative and unique gift that you created that we get to be fathers. Lord, it didn't have to be that way. It was your intention that you would create that form of relationship and you would connect us for a season of life uniquely and then for the rest of life as fathers to children. God, this is a gift from you. And Lord, I stand with these men fully aware that on Father's Day, Lord, we have higher aspirations than what shows up on our report card today. God, we would have wished for more. We wish we could have been more in the past. We wish we could have used the time and used the energy and used that season of life differently than we did. But God, I thank you, thank you today that you find us in our waywardness and you are a means of grace to us right now, today. And you say, return to me. Stand right here. I've got more. I'm not done. I, the Lord God, change not. I'm the God who's been restoring and restoring and restoring for years. And I can restore in your life. 
I'm the God who's been empowering and providing and launching for years, and I can empower you, and I can launch you into this task. So, Lord, we take what we hear in your word, and we come before you today. God, meet us, impart to us as fathers, because, God, we want to be proclaimers of your glory. Lord, if there's, there's nothing else I could say. Lord, if there's no other ambition in my life, Lord, may that one ambition prevail above all others. I pray for the day that my children would say, I saw the greatness of God in my dad. God, that they would not have a low view of you, but they would see you as a God to be honored, a God who is worthy, and above all others, a God who is great. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Do you have a really cool song to finish with, Eric? Is it just like an average song? What kind of question is that? Well, it's a, it's a question that's going to reveal a lot about you. That's what kind of All question right. it is. Cool. Define cool. <laughs> I have a song, yes. All right.